Welcome to a special episode of the Science and the City podcast, presented by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. On February 6, 2014, an event co-sponsored by the Sackler Institute was held at the headquarters of UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, to launch a special issue of the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences that presented papers written by teams of experts from all over the world dealing with an innovative approach to a very persistent problem, improving the health and well-being of underprivileged children. As much progress has been made in recent decades to improve world food supply, there's still a significant percentage of children who are severely malnourished. One of the best measurements for this is by looking for children who are stunted, meaning that they haven't grown and physically developed as well as would be expected for their age. Here's Dr. Maureen Black, professor of pediatrics at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, speaking from the podium at that event. If we look at the uh, global prevalence and numbers of stunting and underweight, you can see the good news. The good news is that the rates of stunting and underweight have declined and they are predicted to continue to decline, at least as far as this goes, which is two, uh, 2015. That's the good news. Here's the less good news, and that is that still globally, approximately 24% or a quarter of children under five are stunted. These are primarily in Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. That overall number of children in the world who are stunted is still enormous. By one estimate, 165 million. That's equal to about half the total population of the United States. And this is proving to be a very difficult problem to tackle, partially because it's not all about nutrition. For their brains to develop properly, children need good mental stimulation as much as they need proper nutrition. People talking to them, playing with them, reading to them, offering them opportunities to try basic skills like stacking and sorting things. And for the world's least advantaged children, access to this kind of early education is as lacking as access to nutritious food. Experts often put this problem in terms of equity, giving every child, no matter the situation they were born into, an equal opportunity to grow up healthy. Here's one of the top officers at UNICEF, their director of programs, Dr. Nicholas Alipui. Children at risk of poor health and nutrition are the same children who are at risk of poor development. Achieving equity and optimal child development requires ba a balanced combination of nutritional adequacy on one hand and consistent caregiving uh, on the other, which are both key aspects um, that need to work synergistically uh, to benefit children. Here's Dr. Black again. From a nutritional perspective, we know how to promote equity. It's through um, early breastfeeding, ensuring that children have uh, micronutrients as well as macronutrients, and through processes such as complementary feeding. When we think about early child development, we talk about consistent caregiving that is nurturant and interactive that goes along with the dynamic process and that children have both responsive and enriching opportunities early in life but throughout life, and that children are protected from the stress and violence that is all too prevalent throughout our world. 
And so we have two communities, researchers, field workers, and policymakers who specialize in these two fields, infant and child nutrition on one side, and on the other, the cognitive growth of young children, which is usually referred to as early childhood development, or ECD. And it's been a goal of both groups to find a way to work together to help both of these crucial and interrelated efforts. And that's what this issue of the annals and this event were all about. Would these two kinds of interventions work better if they combined their efforts? Here's Dr. Mandana Arabi, executive director of the Sackler Institute, describing how this project began as a collaboration between her and Dr. Patrice Engel, a world leader in early childhood development who passed away in 2012 and to whose memory both this event and the issue of the annals were dedicated. This work has started for me, interestingly, as these things go, um, with the personal discussion that I had with Dr. Pat Engel. This idea came up that looking at how nutrition and child development can be better integrated, what are some areas where we can have really synergistic, high-impact interventions to bring this together and to provide support to families in a very integrated manner. Um, the idea started more than two years ago, and then we were fortunate to uh, bring a great group of scientists um, to, to come together at the New York Academy of Sciences in 2012, and um, we started by um, developing the ideas for the series. Um, more than 20 papers were conceptualized. And the scientists worked on these papers for more than a year. We were able to come back together to present these papers, basically to have a live peer review of these concepts and uh, to be able to finalize these papers under the great supervision and editorial support of doctors, um, Dr. Black and Dr. K. Dewey. Here's Lucy Martinez-Sullivan, executive director of the organization 1000 Days. This event, I think, and, and the meetings that led up to it and the, and the, and the papers that led, led into this event um, have gone a long way in starting to really build that connective tissue between the two communities. Um, and certainly there's a lot more that we can do to work together to figure out kind of what the opportunities are moving forward. The importance of this work isn't abstract. It has to do with tangible biological effects on children and the way they grow, particularly in the development of the most complex and most important organ we have, the brain. Here's Dr. Michael Georgieff, professor of pediatrics and child psychology at the University of Minnesota Medical School and an expert on the development of infants' brains. From about four months prior to term birth through about five years of age, there is an enormous amount of brain development that is going on. And in particular, some very important primary structures, the hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory, myelination, which helps with speed of processing, how your brain is already starting to hook up, begins prior to birth. Later developing systems rely on these early systems, these primary systems being built correctly. So the prefrontal cortex, which we see for processing, for executive function, for planning, all those things that are going to go forward in life, um, their initial connectivity comes from these primary structures. Nutrition, of course, is a big part of this growth. These structures can't be built without the nutrients that the body uses as their raw materials. As I like to say, all nutrients are important for development. Nutrients are metabolites. They make your cells work, and that includes your neurons. But there are some nutrients that have particularly large effects early in life, and they're the usual suspects, the ones you've heard before. Protein, 
iron, zinc, iodine, copper, and some of them are global effects. Some of them are much more specific effects. So when one designs outcome studies to try and understand did an intervention work, you want to be tapping into those systems that were affected. What's interesting though, and much less obvious, is that how the body processes these nutrients is as important as supplying the nutrients themselves. And all kinds of things can hamper the body's effective processing of nutrients. A big factor, it turns out, is stress. So stress activates cytokines and cortisol. These divert amino acids from building tissue, meaning brain tissue, uh, in, in order for to have a ready substrate for making glucose, sugar for the brain to work on. Cytokines that are produced activate hepcidin, which is something that reduces the ability of the body to absorb iron. Uh, looking at the hippocampus, again, one of those early developing structures, and how it atrophies with chronic stress, lack of exercise, we could call that lack of stimulation, and with chronic inflammation. These dendrites shrink, the synapses disappear. And as I'm showing you here, iron deficiency does the same thing. These are some of our rats that were iron sufficient, nice branching and nice dendrites, iron deficient, very thin, very aesthetic looking uh, brain structure, does not function as well. What that means is that prolonged stress, what's referred to as toxic stress, which is what happens when you're living under extremely difficult conditions for long periods of time, can actually have the same effects as malnutrition, even if you're eating enough during that time. The perfect storm of the kinds of things that cause toxic stress is, of course, poverty, poor living conditions, untreated chronic illness, lack of fulfilling work, cultural disenfranchisement, hopelessness, and depression. Food insecurity can also cause a kind of toxic stress malnutrition feedback loop. You're not getting enough of the nutrients you need because you're not eating enough, and you're also not processing the nutrients you are getting properly because you're chronically stressed about where your next meal is coming from. This is where we come to early childhood development. Because in order to develop properly, children need to feel safe and cared for, and also have a constant supply of intellectual stimulation. Lack of these things are stress factors that have those toxic effects. And so, preventing childhood malnutrition, and stunting its most visible outward sign, becomes a much more complicated problem than just providing food. Here's Dr. Werner Schultink, Associate Director of Nutrition at UNICEF. The process of stunting is a very complex process. It is not only about nutrients. It is also the interaction with stress factors, with hormones, with uh, a lot of other things, which are possibly difficult to, to understand and to really exactly grasp. And I do not think that we really understand and know what precisely causes stunting. Why is it that undernutrition in early age, what are the pathways which lead to, let's say, an influence on growth hormone and so on, and the, the length growth of, uh, of certain bones? We do know, though, that there is a very clear association. And we also know the process of becoming undernourished is this interaction between inadequate nutrients, infectious diseases, and caring capacity issues. 
And I think that especially in these caring capacity issues, you have a whole host of unknown and un misunderstood and maybe lack of understanding on, on what is actually happening. And here's Dr. Georgieff again. So you see this back and forth nature. That's important from a policy level because just throwing nutrients at kids is not going to necessarily do the trick if the body is not receptive in a low stress enriched environment, if the body is not receptive to utilizing those nutrients. So stress changes the physiology of the brain and of the body in terms of how it uses the nutrients. This interaction of stress and malnutrition causes what might be some surprising relationships. For instance, there's a very strong correlation between stunting in children and depression in their mothers. Here's Dr. Catherine Dewey from the University of California at Davis. When you put all of the studies that met the criteria together, the risk of child stunting was um, very significantly elevated uh, when maternal depression was present. Um, and uh, this is a fairly strong uh, relationship. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. Many of the things that might cause depression in underprivileged women, feeling unsafe in their homes, for instance, might very well also cause the same stress in their children. And also, a woman struggling with depression would be much less well-equipped to provide her children with the intellectual stimulation that they need. So, uh, it, to me, this was something that made sense. But it was also a bit daunting. How exactly do we tackle maternal depression? This is not a simple thing uh, to fix. And it's a global issue, one of the leading causes of disability uh, when you stack it up against all other causes globally. Here's Dr. Jane Lucas, an independent consultant who works on child development issues with UNICEF and the World Health Organization, among others. We know that uh, now that Sensitive and responsive caregiving is essential for the full development of the child, physically, socially, uh, mentally. The caregivers, however, often need support, especially caregivers whose lives are stressed, who live in poverty, who have been separated from their children because of emergencies. Uh, many of these caregivers are at risk, and so their children are at risk of full development. And the health sector can take a lead in this um, because the health sector has great opportunity in the contacts with the child during the first thousand days and up through adolescence when we have a chance to shape future parenting. And there are already some interventions that are starting to make headway into this very complex problem. Here's Dr. Dewey again. I was very... Um refreshed by one of the presentations last year and one of the papers that's in the proceedings uh, by uh, intervention that's been um, tested in, in Pakistan uh, called the Five Pillars Approach. The paper that I'm referring to is the one by Safar and colleagues. And um, this is implemented through community health workers. And it's based on their being trained to provide uh, family support, empathic listening, guided discovery, behavioral activation, and problem solving. And the primary health workers were trained to deliver the intervention, which was called the Thinking Healthy Program. There were 16 uh, visits involved. And in the control group, um, untrained health workers, or, or health workers not trained in this particular intervention, made an equal number of visits. 
they had a very significant impact on maternal depression, but also disability, functioning, perceived social support, contraceptive use, infant immunization, diarrhea, and play frequency at 12 months. So this seemed to be a fairly broad set of outcomes that were linked to the intervention. And there was a marginally significant impact on infant stunting at 12 months by about five percentage points. These beginning signs of success of programs like this one point to a real and obvious value to the childhood development community of joining forces with the nutrition people. And that's that nutrition is almost universally seen as an important aspect of public health. And public health has infrastructure, specifically boots on the ground. Teams of community health workers who are already out in the field working with the most vulnerable populations. Here's Dr. Sally McGregor, Emerita Professor of International Child Health at University College London, speaking to me at the reception following the event. Simulation isn't anywhere. It's got nowhere to go, so it's got to go into health and nutrition. Because, I mean, there, there is no other contact with these, with these families in most countries. I mean, some countries have, like, uh, a Department of Women and Children's Affairs or something like that, and they sometimes do it. Some have cash transfer programs and they could add it. I mean, stimulation could add to anything, but the one thing that nearly everybody has are health and nutrition services. There are several important problems to be addressed, however, if this marriage between nutrition and development interventions is going to work. And the first, ironically, has to do with one of the great recent successes in world nutrition policy, the first thousand days movement. In a nutshell, this is based around the idea that the time of greatest vulnerability to malnutrition for children is roughly 1,000 days long, from the time of conception to age two. This is made for an excellent soundbite for marketing and fundraising efforts, and a terrific focal point for nutrition activists and policymakers to rally around and build their programming around. Here's Ms. Sullivan again, who, as I said, leads an NGO called 1,000 Days. And because we were focused on a time period, because we were focused on mothers and children, um, we, you know, we were able to draw across, you know, a number of different sectors and bring uh, people to the table that, you know, maybe haven't sat across the table from one another. So folks in the hunger advocacy community, sitting next to folks from the water sanitation and hygiene community, uh, talking about stunting, talking about what interventions need to be brought to bear to, to reduce um, malnutrition. The problem is that a child's need for ECD programs doesn't correspond neatly to this thousand-day time frame. Here's Dr. McGregor again, this time speaking from the podium. I'm seriously concerned about this thousand-day message because I don't know any um, intervention study for child development that stopped at the thousand days and had long-term benefits. We haven't demonstrated that at all. So I think it's highly unlikely that if you stop intervening with a child at the end of a thousand days and they're in a deprived situation, that any benefit that they gain in the first 18 months will continue. I think it's highly unlikely and I think we might be making mischief if we don't say it fairly strongly. First thousand days may be great for nutrition message. It's not great for the child development message. Here's Dr. Aisha Yousafzai, 
Associate Professor of Early Childhood Development at Aga Khan University in Pakistan. We have opportunities now to look at how we gain policy traction on child development across a number of systems. So the thousand days message is very strong and very embedded now perhaps in the health sector and health systems. But because we know that that's not going to be enough, we can probably have opportunities to then pass the baton on and where the education sector systems take up um, a greater role and greater responsibility in that transition period as you move from that very early period through to preschool and early school readiness. And I think that that's just one way of perhaps thinking about how we message to different stakeholders um, at a policy or systems level. Another big problem is that the infrastructure for these combined interventions doesn't yet exist. And it's unclear who should be creating and running it. There are lots of programs that touch on both of these issues. Breastfeeding support, mental health programs for mothers, and so forth. But they're not run or monitored under one larger umbrella. So it's a real challenge to find all the places they might be working synergistically. Also, adding childhood development interventions to existing public health work would almost certainly mean giving new responsibilities to existing teams of community health workers who are already chronically overworked and under-resourced. Here's Dr. Dewey again. Now, uh, it's all very well and good to say, well, the community health workers will do it. But as you all, I'm, I'm sure, appreciate, community health workers are overworked. They're being asked to do virtually everything these days. And another paper in the series illustrates this conundrum. And that's the paper by John Puka and colleagues from Malawi in which they did a job analysis of community health workers in the context of integrated nutrition and early child development. There are basically two types of community health workers in Malawi, the health surveillance assistants and the child protection workers. And you can see here that the population coverage that each assistant is supposed to cover is huge, even for the health sur surveillance assistants. But look at what the child protection workers are supposed to cover, 25,000 people each. Um, now, these are their job tasks. You can see that it's extensive, and these two sets don't really overlap. So there's a whole set of things to be done by each of them. So trying to put this all together is, is quite a challenge. Here's Dr. Ali Pui. So that at the end of the day, the footprint and the effect, the impact that's supposed to materialize at the field level in the lives of children in real communities uh, among local populations is constrained by this single uh, operational factor. We don't have enough footprint of the foot soldiers to carry the program. Uh, they are not remunerated. They are not mobile. They have no transportation. Uh, and so the few that are there are overburdened with so many tasks that at the end, we are not getting the quality. As well as logistical obstacles to these problems, there are also cultural ones. For instance, some parents don't realize that you don't need expensive toys or special equipment to provide valuable stimulation for children. Here's Dr. Lucas again. As important it is, as it is, we find that up to one third of parents in poorer circumstances in our surveys, do not play with their children, do not use these activities for 
opportunities for their children to learn. Many times they will say they have nothing in their homes to play with, nothing in their homes to teach their child to count, to sort, to teach the child the beginning skills for cognitive development and preparation for school. And so they don't recognize that you know, their apples and their potatoes and their onions and their spoons and their cups are great, rich resources to help their children learn. Another more subtle issue is that while everyone understands the need for children to eat, the idea that very young children, starting with infants, need to be intellectually stimulated is not as universal. The mores of some traditional cultures actually work against this idea. Here's Dr. Ali Pui again, speaking from his own cultural experience. I come from West Africa, and I know that in certain communities there and around the world, there is a belief that speaking to a child who is incapable of responding back in words to your speech indicates an increasing but cumulative spiritual charge that the child lives with that it cannot get rid of. And so there is a custom of not speaking at all to children to avoid creating an overload. And so it goes that until the so-called age of knowing, when children reach seven, eight years, of age, that parents would avoid speaking to their children. Uh, and that is the custom, that's the tradition, those are borne out by social norms in these areas. And it is critical that as we conceive our strategies for early development and ECD, that we think about addressing these social norms, those cultural, traditional um, uh, foundations that belie um, what we see in terms of um, the lack of stimulation, the lack of engagement of mothers uh, in this area. Here's Dr. Pia Brito, Senior Advisor for Early Childhood Development at UNICEF. Oh, I'm really glad that now we are looking at that at UNICEF because one of the things we found when we look at the gap that exists, let's say, in child health, we look at a gap that exists in children, even stunting or school learning, what we find is that mostly we've approached it from a supply side. What can we give and provide? What can systems work on? And very seldom have we looked at the other, the demand side. What is that families want? What are families who are the strongest advocates for the children? What are they really looking for? And we, if we don't do a careful analysis of the demand side of social norms, we may just continue to provide these services that may be ending up going nowhere, you know, down a black hole. Here's Dr. Lucas again. Now, what is new about this besides just stimulation and nutrition? The new focus that's been added is on caregiving practices improving the parent's sensitivity and responsiveness to the child. And this is the element that I think we need to focus on for these cross-cutting skills that in fact improve the child's health and development and growth. 
So far, we've seen if you add this, we're beginning to see stronger reactions, stronger responses to both the mothers and the children, but also in the health system. And we need to study this much more to be able to tease out which components of these interventions seem to be the most powerful. So what's the best way to move forward? For one thing, the physical evidence for the importance of both properly feeding very small children and supporting their cognitive development is real and compelling. And we need more of it and for it to be seen by more people. And we need more and better data about how effective these combined interventions actually are, whether or not we're actually gaining synergistic benefits by combining them. There are studies that are promising, but they're too small, and there aren't enough of them to be conclusive. Here's Dr. Yousafzai, followed by Dr. McGregor. In moving forward, it's critically important to now report process evaluations to be able to ensure that sufficient time and resources are dedicated to this process. And we have some good examples. For example, Professor Engel and colleagues evaluated a clinic-based intervention in Central Asia using a mixed methods approach to help um, learn lessons for further replication and scale up of um, the care for child development intervention in this region. Um, and we need this data really to be able to look at the association between implementation and a child's healthy growth and development. In small, well-controlled studies, um, it works. Putting stimulation or child development activities in with uh, nutrition programs is obviously sensible. But there really isn't the data on going to scale. The, 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 the data from large programs that we found were nearly all from what we call centre-based programs, as daycare or preschool, which isn't really what we're talking about. We're more talking about up to three, where health and nutrition are so important. How can we integrate? And we couldn't find one study. There's a lot of people doing it, but they're not evaluating it. And I'm a skeptic. I like to see the data. It's crucially important that we do this research and find the best way to help these children. Because when we talk about early childhood development, we're actually talking about nothing less than the economic future of entire regions of the world. It may sound like an exaggeration, but the most current evidence indicates that making sure children develop to their fullest potential may be the single best way to pull communities out of poverty. Here's Dr. Georgiev, followed by Dr. Schultink. Early environment profoundly affects primary brain structures that are necessary for fundamental things like learning and memory, speed of processing, and emotional reward. But those also provide the neural scaffolding for those more complex circuits, those processes that are going to determine what your income is, what your job achievement is, and so on, those frontal lobe processes. These early events may confer a lifetime of risk, and we think that might be occurring epigenetically through modification of critical genes throughout the lifespan and how they regulate how your brain works. About 10 years ago, focus on nutrition was all about the impact on mortality. Children are malnourished, you get an increase in mortality, and if we implement certain nutrition interventions, we're able to bring this mortality down. But the more recent Lancet series um, on nutrition, but also the Lancet series on early child development, 
and then a number of subsequent uh, very good papers on from Guatemala on the impact on um, on income earning, other papers on the relationship uh, with uh, education, really showed that the more long-term consequences, not only on physical stature, but on learning potential in school, educational performance, income earning capacity, and also non-communicable diseases later in life, shifted this focus. And I think that we were very successful in driving this message home. If this evidence is true, and I have no doubt that it is, it means that by looking at very early child development, undernutrition early in age, stimulation, care, you can break the cycle of poverty. And that is very, very powerful, because in the original conceptual framework, we said that poverty led to disease, led to lack of nutrition, leads to the impact on mortality. And now we can say that if you focus on early childhood, if you improve nutrition, if you improve care, if you do other things, you can actually increase or put a child on a different track in life and you can influence the whole potential of nations. And I think it is exactly that statement that caused many countries to kind of take notice and many countries to realize that unless we do more, we really put ourselves in an enormously disadvantageous position. It's only three to four years ago that even in-house here, when I talked about stunting, that people would say, oh no, but it takes generations before you can change things. That's not true. You can change the rate of stunting in three to five years. And yesterday I got a report from Sri Lanka where through an integrated, again, approach, looking at uh, social security issues, nutrition, some agriculture, uh, improved caring capacity for, uh, for households and, and mothers, there was a reduction by about 40 to 50% in the stunting rate over a period of about three to four years in two large districts. It is very well possible. We need to continue to document it, and especially if we can catch how we can bring this together, ECD, nutrition, I think it will be very powerful. And in the end, it's this kind of hard evidence that's truly indispensable. Real data that shows that these integrated interventions can do real and measurable good in the world, both for individual children and for whole communities, even whole nations, that will be the best tool for building the support that these programs need to be effectively designed and implemented. Here's Ms. Sullivan again. Um, evidence can be used to create champions everywhere. I can't tell you how important the evidence, especially around brain science, is when we, when we kind of take that into policymakers um, and show that, um, you know, show some of those slides that, that Werner showed um, to, you know, to different people that are, you know, maybe not familiar with this issue. That is really powerful. People kind of, it clicks for them and they get it. Um, and, and I think that's, that's something that as a community, um, you know, we need to, uh, we need to continue to do and that champions can be found everywhere. Um, and so all aspects of society, not just political champions, but, um, you know, celebrities, chefs, um, you know, folks on, on social media. I don't think we can underestimate that in terms of creating this movement and creating this sort of groundswell for, uh, for investments in early childhood development and nutrition.
This podcast has been a production of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and Science and the City, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition and nutritionresearchagenda.org. You can find complete video recordings of the event described in this podcast at livestream.com slash UNICEF. You can also read, free of charge, the complete unabridged issue of the Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences that was launched at this event at nyas.org slash childhealth. As always, we welcome your comments about this or any Science in the City program to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.